The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry, built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. And with available features like heated seats and a multimedia touchscreen, you can stay connected in comfort and style. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip and agile sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a dependable Corolla built just for you. Plus, both Camrys and Corollas are available in hybrid models. So no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and affordably. And right now, your local Toyota dealer has more vehicles in stock and is making delivery on new vehicles almost every day. So visit your local Toyota dealer. And check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Offers end April 1st. Toyota, let's go places. Harriet Tubman did not wake up one day with a strategy. She woke up from a dream. She saw that her people were free, right? There were, what, seven, eight generations into slavery at that point? There was no guidelines to be like, yeah, we can be free. She imagined it, and then she bent reality. And I think we all have to do that. What if I told you that the ability to imagine is humanity's most powerful tool and our most dangerous weapon? Oppressors used imagination to build a world where black bodies were enslaved as chattel. After hundreds of years of enslavement, Harriet Tubman imagined and manifested what seemed impossible, a life of freedom. What if we could do the same? What if, like Tubman, we could bend reality to fit a more just, beautiful, liberated vision for black life unlike anything we've ever seen in our lifetimes? I'm Jay from Push Black, and today we're talking about the future. So we talk a lot about history on this podcast, but it's just as important to talk about the future, what it's going to mean to be black in 50 years, in 100, for ourselves, our kids, our grands and great-grands. But you got to get creative to see beyond what's here. There's one genre of art that often deals with the future. This is science fiction. It hasn't always felt like a genre welcoming to black people, but writers like Octavia Butler, N.K. Jemison and this week's guest, Adrian Marie Brown, want to change that. Brown has spent a career talking and writing about science fiction and Afrofuturism, exploring how these concepts might hold the key to bringing black liberation from the unknown future down to the present. Brown is the co-editor of Octavius Brood, which is a collection of stories that bridges the gap between science fiction and social justice movements. She's also the writer-in-residence at the Emergent Strategy Ideation Institute, a collective that uses the wisdom of nature to develop strategies for social change. Now it's our turn. Are you ready to imagine something you've never seen? If so, then you're in the right place. Let's do it. What does Black liberation look like to you, and how does your work contribute to that? One of the books that I, I wrote uh, that came out two years ago now is called Pleasure Activism. And I, I bring that in because my vision of Black liberation has shifted over the years. It used to just be like, I just want us to be free. You know, I want us to be free. But now I want even more than that. 
I want us to be able to really touch into our joy and our sense of belonging and our sense of connection and safety without having to look over our shoulders, without having to wonder if anyone can see us or if the police are about to stop us or harm us. Um, I really want that level of, of Black resilience to be something we're not holding against the harm that's caused to us, but something that's just able to be. So that's one of my big, big views of like what I want Black liberation to look like. And a lot of it is measured by the children in my life and the children in the world. I want children to be able to look at adults and see liberated and joyful Black adults around them who can parent them well and love them well and caretake for them well, because we're not under duress of trying to survive a system that is constantly trying to kill us. And my work on that, you know, I wrote Pleasure Activism. I studied Audre Lorde. I studied Octavia Butler, and I'm I'm constantly trying to write and invite people into conversations where we talk about what's the future we actually want, and not just what's the best we can negotiate from people who have consistently oppressed us, um, but what do we actually want for our people? What is our vision? What is the vision for Black people and African diaspora people that predates our trauma and that will take us beyond our trauma? What is Afrofuturism? As it was originally articulated, the idea of Afrofuturism is like Black people thinking about projecting themselves into writing ourselves into the future. And it was actually named by a scholar who was not Black, um, Mark Derry, um, but was looking at the pattern that was emerging of this particular kind of writing from a bunch of Black authors in that time. And I want to name uh, Nnedi Okorafor, who is a Nigerian-American science fiction writer, and she talks about African futurism, that there's also other ways, other places to look at the future that are not rooted in the U.S. experiment, which I always find comforting to just remember that there's so many people who share our lineage, who have had different experiences, and what we're trying to write is a future that's broad enough for all of us. But that's the basics of Afrofuturism. You know, when I talk about Afrofuturism, what I mean is there are Black people in the future and we are self-determining what that means, like how we will occupy the future in a way that is powerful for us. So how does this differ from, you know, maybe just having a Black character on a Star Trek movie or something? I loved all the Black characters on Star Trek. Of course. I was a Geordie sweetie. But I really feel like the, the major difference to me is who gets to be the center of the story. And one of the books that my co-author, uh, Walida Imarisha, and I put out is called Octavius Brood. And we were exploring the idea of visionary fiction because we were like, how would it look if we weren't the sidekick, if we weren't the side character, if our concerns weren't secondary or even tertiary, third concerns, right? What would it look like if our stories were the central story? And how do we get ourselves accustomed to our stories being the central story. And the effort it takes to write those stories and read those stories, it means in some way for Black people who are so used to being decentered in the narratives that concern us and in the worlds that we build, it means we have to really reclaim ourselves at a narrative level, but also at a spiritual level. The trauma of being in the US story is that we're constantly told that we are the minority, we are here to labor, we are here to work. We have to fight for every right that we have attained. And it is so liberating to be inside of a story that doesn't have those limitations, a story where we are the protagonist 
where our children are the most important children in the story and what happens to them determines the, the good, the value, the power of that world. So I think it's very different. It's the difference also between being included in someone else's version of the future and actually getting to articulate our own. And that's really fascinating, the last point you made, because I do believe that often, you know, we're expected to, and I, I would say trained to work within the realms of the system that was constructed by others that aren't in our community. They give us these sort of guidelines and rules and say, okay, we can try to do something, but it has to meet this criteria. But what you seem to be talking about is more visionary and sort of breaking outside of that box. Um, So how do we as a people create that? And is it necessary that we have a shared vision or could it be individual? I mean, I'll say a few things on this. One is, I don't think we have to have a shared vision. And I think we've actually spent sometimes years, decades, <laughs> um, trying to fight for like a single shared vision. I think what's true in nature is that biodiversity is what survives. So when you look at a healthy forest or healthy jungle, it's not one type of plant or one type of tree growing in every direction. It's a million different kinds of trees and a million different kinds of plants and mushrooms and all these other things and birds and all kinds of stuff that is relying on each other, that's in right relationship to each other. I long for that for us as Black people, for us to have many, many different opinions, many different ways of being and moving forward that are outside of any small stereotypes we've been given for ourselves and that we celebrate all those different ways that we are thinking and being, but that we have a common sense on the other side of it that we all fight for our liberation. None of us will sell ourselves, right? Sell each other to those who wish to cause harm for us. And that feels important to me. In terms of the how, I think the work of Octavia Butler and Nettie Okorafor, Tanana Reeve and other Black futurists is part of the how which is we have to literally write ourselves in, right? We have to write ourselves in. We have to come up with visions for ourselves that are more compelling than staying in the compromises of oppression that are currently asked of us. And I think when we don't have those visions, then it becomes very hard for people to actually fight for what we need, right? We fight and we end up compromising ourselves again and again. And I'm really interested in what's beyond the compromise. What does it look like for us to live as an uncompromised people? So I'm trying to imagine that all the time. And I write about that all the time. And it looks like a lot of healing. It looks like a lot of play. It looks like a lot of pleasure. It looks like a lot of harnessing our power. Let Tend Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top-rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, TEND is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait. Visit hellotend.com sale. That's hellotend.com slash sale. And book your free consult today. You mentioned that there were a group of writers doing similar things in this space at the time. Can you say more about that? Like, uh, why was this taking place at that particular time? Yes. You know, there was a number of writers and the two that I point to most frequently are Octavia Butler and Samuel R. Delaney. And they were both Black people who came across science fiction and 
thought, I can do that. <laughs> I can do that. I can write something I think that'll be as powerful, if not more powerful than what I'm reading right now. And initially it was just the two of them. And then slowly people started to read and to see what it felt like to have a black protagonist written by a black author and how much was lost when white people were trying to write black characters. So I think they started to influence and create a field. And before you knew it, you know, by the eighties, mid eighties, I'd say it was a very vibrant field. Um, and now it is a very vibrant writing field. There's more authors than I could name who are creating in this realm. And many of them are award-winning now uh, for a long time. Our writing was not viewed as literary, <laughs> you know, but Octavia Butler opened up a lot of that space as well. She was the first science fiction writing Black woman to win the MacArthur Genius Grant, which is both a financial award, but also a huge reputation, you know, award for someone to be called a genius officially. She won that. She won the Hugo. She won the Nebula. These are the top prizes that you can win within science fiction writing. It's like the Oscars of science fiction. So it was like these folks were writing. At first, they were rejected. And then they basically built a world in which people could read and understand them. And Black people bought those books. We love them. We needed them. And to this day, I love meeting people who are like, I remember the first time I read Octavia Butler. I remember the first time I got to see myself as a lead character and how transformative it was. Speaking of just writing about the future and Black people in the future, you know, a lot of speculative fiction is pretty dystopian. You know, it's a vision of the future that if we don't solve today's problems, then something terrible is going to happen. Are these types of visions for the future useful? And if so, how or if not, how? I always say I think it is useful to have these dystopian texts um, as a warning, right, to give us a chance to play out what is likely to happen and how would we survive in those circumstances. So, you know, the parable of the sower and the parable of the talents is about an extremely dystopian vision of what happens in the U.S. And Octavia wrote that text in the 90s. And the slogan, the campaign slogan of the president who runs for office in those books was make America great again, right? So, you know, she always said that she was like, I wasn't a prophet. I just was paying attention to the conditions around me and what could happen. So in that way, I think it's always really important to, to engage. Like right now, we're living in a dystopian and apocalyptic time. We're living in a plague. We're living in economic crises. We're living in racial crises. Writing utopian things is not going to disappear our need to survive these conditions, right? So I think that helps. But something I always point out to people is that in real life, dystopias and utopias don't come separately. Usually, dystopias are created by some people living in a utopia. <laughs> so even right now, there are super, super, super beyond imagination wealthy people who have benefited greatly from us having this massive pandemic. Something that has been the worst experience of many of our lives has been a great financial benefit to others. They are living in a utopia. They have all their needs met. Everything they want is delivered to them. A good friend of mine pointed out that the pandemic has basically been rich people ordering things that poor people delivered to them. And that's how we've moved through it. Those kind of situations help me understand that instead of pulling apart utopia and dystopia, I always want to pay attention to 
Who in the story is serving? Who is enslaved? Who has agency? Who gets to choose what work they do? Who gets to choose how their children are cared for? And how do we make sure that those, those basic, basic, basic human rights are spread amongst as many people as possible? That's what we need to be writing and practicing if that's what we want to see come into existence in real life. So how do we practice that? You know, for someone listening right now, what are some of the tools or mindsets that can be put in place in order to push us towards a future that, you know, we see ourselves as the agents, as the center of the stories? There's a few basic things that I do and I practice myself and encourage others to do. One is to read as much science fiction, as much fiction as you can. Read books that are visionary. I find it really helps me to just think through, to be like, oh, how did this person imagine that we could practice liberation together? And how did someone else do it? That can help start to spark in you your own ideas for how would I do this differently? So one is to just read. And I often tell people who are like, I don't have time to read. I'm like, just redistribute 10 minutes a day from your social media time to a book. You'll find if the book is good, you'll start redistributing more and more time (laughs) to that book. And I think you get more nourished from those kind of texts than you do from the endless scroll necessarily. So that's one piece. And then when we put the book Octavia's Brood out, so Octavia's Brood is from people who are, you know, would call themselves organizers, activists, social justice people. And the idea is that we're looking ahead, you know, if you're trying to organize and create change in the world, then you're already engaged in some kind of science fictional behavior. You're trying to create a world that we've never seen before, right? We've never seen a world without homelessness. We've never seen a world in which everyone had food to eat and education, not in our lifetimes. So the way we did that was we had people submit these stories to us. And then we went around the country and we did these visionary fiction workshops where we would get people together in collectives and have them talk about what is something in your neighborhood, in your community right now that needs more vision brought to it. And people had tons of ideas, tons of answers, and not everyone is a writer, you know? So sometimes people get really daunted by the act of writing, but I argue that every single person has a piece of the future inside of them. So if you're a writer, you can write that piece, but if you're not, you can just say that piece. You can dream aloud with other people. You can co-create things together. So the collective writing process, I think is a really beautiful one. And it's pretty simple. You know, you just brainstorm, like, what are things we want to attend to? So I live in Detroit. And when I first started doing this, one of the main things we were talking about was education. How do we actually create fair and just education systems in the city? How do we create more access to water? How do we make sure that no one's getting their heat turned off in the winter? We looked at very tangible things. And then we came up with outlandish and beautiful ideas to help move those things into reality. And We always finish with saying, like, what are some ways that we could imagine, like, next steps to help bring this visionary future more into the present? And I think that helps with people who are a little bit more (laughs) fact-based, you know, if you're like, but I like reading the news. I'm like, yes, the news was imagined by somebody. (laughs) Everything that's the news for us right now, someone else imagined that. Even basic ideas, the idea that people that were white were supreme, a white person imagined that. That's not true. (laughs) It's not based in science. You know, men are not superior, right? There's so many things like that that we take for granted because someone imagined them and made them seem true to us. I often talk about this when the police shoot one of our members of our community, that they can go into court and say they imagined that that person was dangerous. And that imagination that they have is so powerful 
that the police officers will get off. So I'm like, what would be the outcome for Mike Brown or Trayvon Martin or all these other people if we didn't believe so deeply in the white imagination? And if we understand the power of that imagination, then how do we actually harness it together to imagine a world in which those kind of harms could never happen to our people? That's amazing. I appreciate you laying that out. And as a side note, so years ago, I started writing a piece and I spent all this time imagining, you know, what the world should look like for the story I'm writing and got so caught up in the research and the world building. I've never finished the story because then I became caught up in doing that work in the real world. But you're living the story. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so um, it's very exciting and encouraging hearing that you have gone around the country doing this with others. And are these um, folks who are writers or just community members who you're engaging with? So mostly community members, because, you know, what we found was a lot of people don't see themselves as visionary. They don't see themselves as writers of the future um, or they're hiding that. You know, I think of it like hiding their light behind a bushel, you know, Um, like I know so many people who are like, I'm going to be a writer one day. But right now, things are not constructed to easily be able to pursue your art or your writing. So I love getting organizers and artists and just workers, you know, folks who are like, I work hard every day. And I, everyone who works, everyone who lives, everyone who breathes, everyone who feels, they have ideas for what the future could look like. And one of the places I learned this the most clearly was when it came to disability justice and people who have disabilities that over and over again, I would show up for a workshop or show up somewhere and there'd be people complaining because they're like, we can't get in the space or the space is not designed for us. And there's no bathrooms that have wheelchair access. And like, there's all these problems with this space. And I was like, well, what, how could we do this better? Cause this keeps happening. And the answer was stop imagining it without us. So I'm always like, if you really want people to be able to inhabit a world invite them to imagine that world, invite them to imagine the building, the neighborhood, right? Where their children will play, where will the food come from? How will they transport themselves around? You know, like people have ideas about these things. Thank you for that example. I'm interested in other examples you may have of ideas or concepts that folks involved in these workshops brought to the table that, you know, really excited you or things that stand out in your mind from members of the community as far as their vision for the world? One of the things that has been really exciting to me that I saw come out in a workshop and then later got to learn that people were actually practicing was the idea of liberating resources, liberating utilities. And like I said, I live in Detroit and One of the things that happens almost every winter is they'll go around and turn people's heat off. And, you know, people rarely like don't pay their heat bill because they're like, I just want to be cold out here, right? It's like people are facing serious economic crises. So someone wrote a story in which there was like a brigade that would go around and turn the heat back on and that it was a direct action that they would take to support their community. And then I saw that that was happening in the community later, you know, and I feel like there's certain things like that, that once we imagine it and we recognize like, well, this is our place. We do the labor, you know, we do the labor that makes the city run, that makes the buses run, that makes the schools run. And the pandemic I think has been so elucidating is when you look at who are essential workers in this country, it's black and brown workers primarily. And 
I don't think that's an accident. I think that the country was shaped to benefit off of the labor of black and brown bodies. When you get that to happen in a workshop where people are like, wait a second, <laughs> all of this is ours. Why are we accepting someone coming into our community and taking resources away from those who need it? We actually won't accept that anymore. It starts to change how you see your role in a community, right? We had similar things with water brigades, people going back in and turning the water back on at the level of the pipes, <laughs> you know, just saying like, we don't have to stand by and watch our people go thirsty, hungry, or cold. We know what to do. We're the ones who run most of these systems. So things like that always excite me. It excites the rebel in me, but it also excites the part of me that's just very pragmatic. Like you don't wait for those people who have oppressed you forever to have a change of heart necessarily about what the future is going to look like for you. You start to determine what you want that future to look like, and then you make it impossible for anything else to come to pass. So I love what you were just talking about as far as choosing not to wait for those who have oppressed us to change things. Sounds to me like self-determination, which is something that we talk about all the time on this podcast and very radical in the sense that, you know, I think it throws out this traditional notion of appealing to the morality of a system that has not shown significant change on that front over time, but instead taking matters into our own hands. So I really, really love that. But I'm interested in how folks have responded to that, because I think that is an idea that has been sort of ingrained in us that, you know, if we we make these moral appeals, then, you know, eventually we shall overcome and all that. So um, have you you know, experience any kind of pushback from our community or others for the terms that you're, you're thinking in? I mean, one of the beautiful things about ideating together when you're thinking together, right? It's just being like, we are dreaming together, coming up with things. And one of the things I often tell people is the person who writes it isn't always necessarily the person who does it, right? The person who imagines these things and puts them into the world, sometimes they get to be the one who follows through, but sometimes they help provide a vision for others of this is how this could happen. This is what this could look like. So I think that's what's interesting is, you know, when that was written in one of the workshops I was a participant in, nobody was necessarily organizing to do that. You know, that wasn't something that folks were talking about. And then it came to pass. And it's not like we published it and people are like, oh, that's what we're going to do. It's more that it got put into the ether, got put into the air, right? We need to reclaim this for ourselves. And it got put into the air by people who were organizing and living and working and doing these things. So what I notice is a lot of the feedback that comes from people who push back on it is ingrained in a long, long, long system of being in fear, living in fear, living in fear and waiting, waiting, waiting for someone to do right by you. And I really think that we're in an abusive relationship with this country <laughs> at this point, to put it mildly. And that's one of the characteristics often of an abusive relationship is that you keep trying to behave better and expecting different results, even though you don't get better behavior. I'm interested in also transformative justice and what does accountability actually look like? You know, I wrote a short story a couple of years ago for the Harvard Design School that was all about reparations because I'd been hearing about reparations for years. I'd organized for reparations, but then I was like, have I really thought this through? Like, 
what would actually feel powerful and collective and organized? Like, how can I imagine it? And I think that's a good exercise for anyone to do, especially if you're fighting for something out in the world, is to make sure that you join in with other people to do the work, but that you also have your own idea of like, what would this look like? What would make this successful? We need to check in with the part of us that knows how to be satisfied or doesn't, right? Part of, I think, our socialization, particularly as Black people in this country, is that satisfaction wasn't even possible, that the most we could do was work for somebody else to earn off of our bodies and our labor, and then eventually retire and get a few years of rest and then die. And that's our lives. And the challenge from Audre Lorde and from many other writers is what it would it look like if we were living lives that deeply satisfied us? What would that look like? And now it's a question I ask to organizers. A lot of my movement work has been with the movement for Black Lives, Black Lives Matter, BYP 100, right? Folks who are doing Black organizing today. And it's a question that I've asked. How will we know when we're satisfied? What is it we actually long for? Not just what is the bare minimum we think we can ask for, what's politically possible. To me, this radical imagining work that we're talking about today, that's how you move beyond what's possible in a limited perspective right now that has mostly been designed by white people who didn't love us to what we actually need to experience liberation in our lifetimes as Black people. For you personally, what's that point of satisfaction? So for me, I look at a lot of how we treat each other, how we treat our leaders, how we treat those who step up to lead. And I know that one aspect of satisfaction is that when people step up to lead, we really honor that leadership. Right now, I feel like what's happening is, I see this happen so often, is that people step up to lead and we initially celebrate that. And then before too long, we're tearing them down. (laughs) They're engaged in some kind of online battle to fight with whomever about whatever. So the latest book that I put out was about this, like, we will not cancel us. Like, what does it actually look like to have consequences? You know, if harm happens, we need those consequences. We need to be able to address that. But right now we're in a pattern of moving at the pace of social media when the work that we're trying to hold moves at the pace of the human heart. There's such different paces. And I know that part of my satisfaction would be when I see Black leaders step up and know that they're going to be honored and held with safety and care by their community, even if they mess up, because we all mess up. Everybody I know causes harm, makes mistakes, says the wrong things sometimes. And now we do that in public more often. So that's one of it. And the other is really economic liberation, that we figure out a way to move outside of capitalism as the only economic system we're willing to practice and play inside of, that we really start to engage what does cooperative economics look like for us as a people, both inside and beyond the current conditions. And I see a lot of people experimenting with this that make me really excited. I see people thinking about how do we, as Black people, start to have land that's in right relationship with our Indigenous community, friends and family and loved ones? Like, how do we have land that um, we actually get to form a right relationship to and care for, right? Um, To me, economy and land and food, like, I know I'll be satisfied when our folks can eat what we grew and know pieces of land that know our names, that love us, that hold our ancestors. 
So you mentioned how folks in one of your workshops were writing about a solution to the water situation. Um, and you mentioned, you said that it, this idea, well, you know, it was put on paper, it was discussed amongst you all, but um, it essentially just went out into the, the ether and it started going into action. And to me, uh, it seems like there may be a certain uh, spiritual aspect to this type of work and creativity. Am I assuming right? Yeah. I mean, I think there's a spirit and I think there's a science to it. And I'm always like trying to figure out the balance between the two. And and I figure I'll get the answer when I die and everything's made more clear. But, you know, there's this interesting science that I learned about a few years ago where if they put out the New York Times, you know, Sunday edition and um, people go to try to fill it in, they struggle with it. You know, they're all trying to figure it out to fill it in for the first time. But if they have a group of people who've never seen it before, who try to fill the Sunday times out on Monday, after millions of people around the world have filled it in, have practiced, they go like twice as fast filling it in. Mm. And it's not because they saw the answers, right? And you're talking about the, uh, I'm sorry, the crossword puzzle. This is the crossword puzzle. Yeah, thank you. (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. um, the the most important part of the New York Times, right? (laughs) So I found that so fascinating that it was like at some level, our connectivity, our interdependence shows in those ways. And it's traceable, like a trackable scientific factual thing that you can't argue with. It's just like, oh, the more people who know uh, that something is happening or something is true, the more people who can know that it's true. The same thing has happened many times throughout the world when it comes to invention, that someone will invent something and shortly thereafter, disconnected people in different places all have that same breakthrough. It's like, oh, it's time for humans to have this now. It's time for humans to figure this out now. So I apply that kind of science to the way I approach a lot of the visioning and imagination work I do. Is I may not be able to explain exactly why, but I know if a lot of us think about liberation and think about it this way and this clearly and with a lot of intention, we can change what our people understand or think is possible, right? It changes the way the conversation flows, you know? Right now, we're in a really interesting collective visioning moment where a couple of years ago, if I would say to someone, hey, I'm an abolitionist, I want to end the prison industrial complex, you know, people would look at me like, okay, girl, <laughs> I don't really know what you're talking about. Now, we are in a, a moment when across the nation, people and entire cities are committing to defunding the police, and it's happening at the level of policy, and there's the Breathe Act and all these other things. What happened in between those two things? People were willing to say visionary things out loud. Like the ideas didn't change. Abolition isn't something new. It's the same idea that we've had since we ended slavery. It's the same thing. But what happened is people were willing to be visionary and imaginative out loud. That's really powerful. I think that's something that if intentionally used at a certain scale could truly be transformative for our struggle for our people. I think it always has been the most transformative thing. Harriet Tubman did not wake up one day with a strategy. She woke up from a dream. She saw that her people were free, right? She woke up from that dream and then she was like, okay, this is my work. My work is to make that dream a reality because I can already see it and I know. That's her imagining. There was nothing around her. There was nothing that she had seen or generations before her had seen right? They were what, seven, eight generations into slavery at that point. There was no guideline to be like, yeah, we can be free. She imagined it. And then she bent reality. 
And I think we all have to do that. You know, speaking of our sister Harriet Tubman and also the mention about leadership in our community, you know, I've heard discussions for the past several years um, about, I think some folks are divided about whether or not we have or need leaders for the current movements or current part of this sort of intergenerational struggle. Are you aware of the conversations happening where folks, some folks are like, you know, this needs to be a leaderless movement. Um, but obviously on the other side, you have folks saying that we don't have, we need leaders, but we don't have leaders. Are you aware? And what are your thoughts? Yeah, I'm aware. You know, I think I see it a little differently because my other job, which I'm not doing as actively right now, but for 20 plus years, I was a facilitator of social justice movements in the U.S., particularly Black social justice movements. So, you know, when I hear people say we don't have the leaders, I'm like, I can point you to 20, 30, 100. I actually know so many people that I think are exactly the right leader in the right time and in the right place. What I think is we're in a different phase of how we navigate celebrity culture and how we navigate the singular leader. So one of the things that I believe very deeply is not a leaderless movement, but a leaderful movement, that we actually have so many people, so many leaders that we're less vulnerable. And I think this is one of the deepest lessons that the civil rights movement left us with, right? As we grieved all the assassinations, all the infiltrations, all the harm that was done by COINTELPRO from that period. One of the things it taught us was also just how vulnerable it is if we have leaders who are uplifted as singular, when we know that the work never happens by one person alone. And when the work is lifted up that way, people can get confused and they can think, oh, if we assassinate this person, we can stop this movement, right? So I'm very interested in strategies that uplift many, many leaders where vision is shared by so many people that you can't even tell where you could chop off the head to stop the snake. And I look at other places where there have been successful revolutions and successful changes of leadership. And one of the things they have in common is that there's no visible leader who stands out and above all the rest. And I think for us, you know, in Black movement right now, we're trying to figure out how to navigate that. Because on one hand, it really helps to have some of these viral leaders and these viral moments and to have you know, people that people can look up to and feel inspired by. On the other hand, we don't want those people to then become vulnerable as individuals when there's so many people holding the work. And right now, I actually think we're doing a pretty good job of figuring out how to navigate that. Like there are moments where a leader will get uplifted here and there, or, you know, our folks get honored by big magazines or big newspapers. But there's so many people involved in every one of those efforts. And like, you'll see a moment where people be like, oh, Stacey Abrams did this thing in Georgia. And then immediately other people, they're like, yes, with 5,000 other people, <laughs> you know, um, like nobody's working by themselves. And the first book that I put out that had like a bigger response to it was called Emergent Strategy. And it was like, how do we learn from nature? This is one of my favorite things about the most fecund systems in nature, the ones that can last through anything, is that there's many, many, many life forms that are all symbiotic, that are in relationship to each other. So 
An example of this is if you look at Katrina, what Katrina did in New Orleans, one of the only things that was standing in some of the areas was the oak trees because the oak trees, while they're not as showy above ground, were deeply rooted and completely interconnected underground. That to me is the goal for our movements. Maybe you'll see something above ground, maybe you won't. What matters most is do you see the changes that are happening? Do you see how the culture is shifting? Do you understand that the language is shifting, right? Because we're deeply, deeply tied together underground and we're holding each other so tightly that no one can be pulled out. No one can be taken from us. That's one of my other visions for us, right? Is that we don't allow ourselves to be infiltrated or harmed in that way, that we actually make us something so strong. You know, if we really go there, my vision is I want our movements to be so strong that if someone tries to infiltrate us, they'll get moved by the vision too, <laughs> right? That they're just like, oh, you know what's better than whatever the, the feds are offering me is this freedom. Is there any final words you'd like to share with our audience in terms of imagination, visioning, turning words into power, anything you'd like to share? You know, I think the one thing that I would say is if you ever have a hard time imagining, if you're like, I, I feel stuck, I can't quite get there. Just think of a Black person in history who inspires you, you know, maybe a Black inventor, maybe a Black writer, maybe first Black person to go to space or something, and really try to tap into their imagination. If that person was still alive now, what would they want next, right? What is the next thing that you would put in their trajectory? And that helps me a lot because I'm like, I'm not just living for myself as a Black person. I have to also recognize that I'm one of the freest Black people to ever live because of the labor that my ancestors put into my freedom. And they did not do all that so that I would stop imagining. So I pick up the thread in that way. And I find that I never, ever have boredom or lack of imagination if I pick up the thread in that way. And I think that's how we have to operate at all times. That's what nature teaches us. We have to just be the freedom and we have to practice it with each other in community. And just like that, we're at the end of this episode of Black History Year. This podcast is produced by Push Black, the nation's largest nonprofit black media company. At Push Black, we agree with Marcus Garvey when he said, a people without knowledge of their past, history, origin, and culture is like a tree without roots. And I'm guessing you probably feel like that's important too. I mean, here you are at the end of a podcast about black history. You matter. Your choice to be here matters. It lets us know that you value this work. Push Black exists because we saw we had to take matters into our own hands. You make Push Black happen with your contributions at blackhistoryyear.com. Most folks do five or ten bucks a month, but everything makes a difference. Thanks for supporting the work. The Black History Year production team includes Tariq Alani, Patrick Sanders, Albany Jones, William Anderson, Jerea Bradley, Brooke Brown, Shonda Buchanan, Brianna Lambach, Courtney Morgan, Aquia Tate, Tasha Taylor, Leslie Taylor Grover, and Darren Wallace. Producing and editing the podcast, we have Sydney Smith and Ivana Tucker. Julian Walker is the executive producer of the podcast. And I'm Jay from Push Black. Thanks for checking us out. <laughs>